If you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, we're going to be in chapter 8 this morning, continuing our study through the Gospel. We've been there for some time this year, and we find, our, find ourselves this week in chapter 8. Actually, we're going to grab the last verse from chapter 7, and as you're turning there, I have to caveat our text today by explaining what some of your Bibles probably have in it. It may come as a surprise to you if you look down in the notes closely in some of the newer translations of your Bible. It might say, and I quote, the earliest manuscripts do not include verse or chapter 7, 53 through 8, 11. Now, most of the earliest Greek manuscripts of the Bible do, in fact, omit these verses completely. Others place them at differing locations in John's Gospel and some even in Luke. There was actually only one early Greek manuscript that has the verses that we're going to look at this morning in it. And this diversity of manuscripts leads many to believe that this should not be considered part of the canon of Scripture because of uncertainty whether John actually wrote this passage or not. They don't even know if John wrote it, so if we can't establish that John wrote it, then maybe we shouldn't put it in our Bible, some would say. But... The narrative that we find here is consistent with the rest of the canonical narratives. In other words, it it fits with the rest of Scripture. It fits into the character of Jesus and what he would say. And by preaching and teaching this story, what we do is we keep alive an authentic tradition of an event of Jesus' life. I actually do believe that what I'm about to preach happened or else I wouldn't be preaching it to you this morning. So my caveat is some pastors won't even preach this. Uh, But because of my view of scripture and tradition, I've chosen to. And if you have any questions about that, feel free to ask me after service. I don't say that to make you question your Bibles. There's only a couple passages in your uh, modern Bibles that you have today that would uh, make me have to say any of that. But I do say it just so if you're wondering and you notice the little thing in your Bible, like mine says that. The earliest uh, manuscripts do not include uh, 753 through 811. If that freaks you out, please come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you more about it, why you can actually trust the Bibles that you have in front of you. So the text is John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. We are going to be looking at uh, the woman caught in adultery. It says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your scripture this morning, the same Holy Spirit that inspired the writers of the New Testament to include this in our Bibles, to carry it down all the way through the ages down to us today, 
that same faithful Holy Spirit. We pray that that spirit would illuminate this text for us to learn how it connects to our individual lives today. So, Lord, the same spirit that inspired this, we pray that it would inspire, it would inspire us. Lord, I pray that as I preach this sermon that you would uh, be with my words, that anything that I say that is not of your word would go in one ear and right out the other. Lord, I pray that my words would be of your heart, that, the, the, that my heart would be confessing the things that you want this church to hear this morning. And I pray these things in your son Jesus' name. And amen. amen. So. I want to do a quick mental exercise to help us all get into this text, or rather to get this text into us. So I want everyone listening to think of the concept of adultery or sexual immorality. I want you to think of that and think of it in the broad sense of it, the way that Jesus speaks about it. If you remember in Matthew 5, Jesus says that if a a man looks at a woman lustfully, that he's committed adultery. So I want you to think of it in this big, broad sense, adultery and sexual immorality. Now, Now that you have that image in your mind and what you've gone to, I want you to consider this. To some of you, this narrative will uh, appeal more towards the woman. To others, you can see yourself in the Pharisees, right? If you thought about your own sexual immorality and sin and you internally kind of hung your head and you felt bad and you probably felt felt a little bit guilty, you need to see yourself as the woman in the story. This is probably who you're going to lean towards identifying with more, and you should. Now, if you thought of someone else's sexual immorality, someone else's adultery, or or, or context where you know that someone slipped up into that kind of sin, if you thought of that and you felt a little bit self-righteous about it, you you probably need to see yourself as the Pharisee in this story. Now, we can all lean one way or the other, and I'm not accusing you of either one, but just think of it that way. We need to uh, be able to get into this text, and to get into this text, we have to relate it to our current context. So what we all need to see, though, is that none of us is Jesus in this story. None of us is Jesus. We all need help. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to look at the situation and then the people in the situation. We're going to try to parse this out and see where we all fit in this and how it relates to our context today. So the situation that we have here is a adultery case. Someone has committed adultery. The text says in verse 3 that she was caught in adultery. But if you look down at uh, verse 4, it says, uh, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now think about that. They caught her red-handed in the very act of adultery, and there was no one denying it. It was a very clear case, crystal clear, in fact, that this woman has committed adultery, and in the rawest terms, we saw it, Jesus. She's guilty, is what they're saying. And to help you relate better to this text, I want you to consider a time when you were caught in the act. Now, you all have different contexts and things that you deal with in life, but I want you to think about a time where you were caught in an act. Maybe you weren't caught in adultery. Maybe you weren't caught in sexual immorality. But I want you to think about uh, when you got caught and you had sinned and there was no bones about it. Your goose was cooked, right? You were caught. How did that make you feel? Did you feel embarrassed maybe? Maybe a little bit guilty, ashamed, just plain bad, right? Now, I want you to ask yourself this. Was that how Jesus wanted you to feel in light of your sin? After you've sinned, you've messed up, everyone knew it. Did Jesus want you to feel bad about it? Now, I want you to think of a time that you caught someone else in the act. There was no denying it, right? You you saw someone sin, and they sinned big. There was no denying it. Maybe even you told someone else about it. You started to gossip, and you told them how bad it was, what they actually did, and you went on and on, right? I want you to think about that. 
How did that make you feel? What were the things that were going through your heart when you were telling someone about that sin? Probably a little bit puffed up, right? It wasn't me this time. I feel pretty good about this, right? I I feel good. I'm proud. I'm self-righteous. Overall, you walked away feeling pretty good about yourself, didn't you? Now, I want you to ask yourself again. Is that the way that Jesus wanted you to feel about that scenario? When you're gossiping and you're starting to feel pretty good about it. Is that the way that Jesus wants us to think about that? Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. But for now, I want, you, I want us to think about the legal implications of this text. And I'll explain what I mean by that. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. And there was a lot of laws that had uh, applicable things to say about this. There was a, a Jewish law that they lived in and a Roman law. And this was the context. There was kind of these conflicting, uh, this conflicting society, kind of like we, when we live here in America, right? We have things that we believe in the church that isn't necessarily the law of the land. And this is kind of where Jesus was. And what we have to do is give a little bit of credit to the scribes and the Pharisees because they really did put Jesus in a predicament. This was a tough situation that Jesus found himself in. You may not see the conflict, but the Jews um, at this time did not live in a theocracy. In other words, God's role, God's law wasn't the law of the land. Now, that was their hope. They wanted that to be uh, the law of the land, but they were actually living under Roman law. And Roman law said different things than the Jewish law did. So while their law called for the death penalty with such an offense, this woman had a a death penalty under the Jewish law. The Roman law didn't say this. The Roman law didn't allow for this. So if Jesus were to stone this woman, he'd actually be breaking the Roman law and probably he'd be executed himself. Right. So Jesus would if he acted on the Jewish law, he would have been uh, in trouble. But if he told these people not to stone the woman, then this would have been seen as denying the law of God. Now, do you see the conflict? Do you see where the Jews think they've got him, right? So they were manipulating Jesus into a trap. And essentially, he was damned if he didn't, and he was damned if he did, right? No matter what he did, he was in trouble. And the cultural expectation of Jesus was this. These Jews, these scribes and Pharisees, they kind of had an idea of the way that Jesus would respond, the way that he would act. And because Jesus had been healing people, which we've seen if you've been following along through John, Jesus has been doing things like this. He's been healing people. He's been associating with the lowly of society. And these Jews expected that Jesus would let this woman off the hook. That's what they're thinking, that Jesus is going to let this woman off the hook. The, The scribes and the Pharisees thought that Jesus was a soft teacher that was loose on the issues. And they probably considered him something of a liberal. That's probably what was going through their mind. This guy is a, a loosey-goosey kind of guy. He's going around telling people they can do whatever they want to do, and we're going to catch him on this. We're going to show to the public that Jesus is a liberal, that he doesn't have a backbone, and that he won't stand for the law of God. So, in sum, you have a very complex situation where a woman has clearly been caught in the act, is deserving of death in the Jewish eyes, but in Roman society it was untenable, illegal, in fact, and the Pharisees believe that they have got Jesus at this point. He's, he's been had. And this is the test that will break him and expose that he's indeed not a true Israelite. They're going to expose him and show it. They think he's a flimsy liberal who doesn't have the backbone to uphold the law of God nor take on the consequences of uh, the Roman law either. He doesn't have what it takes. So what will he do? Now, before we put Jesus on the spotlight, I want to look at the two kinds of people in this story. We're going to look at what Jesus does in a minute, minute, but I want you to analyze the the people in this story, the scribes and the Pharisees and the woman. These are the people in our story today. And as I've already kind of alluded to, the scribes and the Pharisees represent some kind of a a self-righteous nature, don't they? 
We can see our self-righteous heart in them. And then we have the woman. And the woman represents something of shame and guilt, which we can, some of us, also feel in ourselves, right? We relate to the woman, some of us more to the woman, some of us more to the scribes and Pharisees, but at all times we, we fall on either side of this. So both of these people, what we see, are living in the same cycle of grief. Let me explain what I mean by that. Both of these people are living in the same cycle of grief. The Pharisees feed off of the guilt and shame projected onto others. This is what fuels them. They feel better when they can make others feel bad. And this moves the spotlight from their sin and renders them safe until someone else's outperforms them. Right? They're good as long as someone else is bad. Now what about the woman? Well, the woman or the shameful and guilty, they feed off of the approval of the self-righteous. If they can earn the acceptance of the, the righteous ones, they feel they're safe, at least until they sleep up again. Right? So they, they're good as long as everyone else thinks they're good. And what you see here is this is a, a cycle of constant grief. There's no relief in living this way. The cycle of grief goes like this. It starts with works, your performance, how you act in life. And then it moves to your identity, how you view yourself, who you are as a person. And then it ends in acceptance or denial, right, depending on how you performed on the other two. So from works to identity to acceptance or denial. Let me, let me hash this out a little bit for you. The Pharisee starts with work, and he feels good about his identity because he, he's worked, he's done hard. He says, I've, I've done a great job this week. I haven't been as bad as that guy. And he feels good about his identity. Then he assumes his acceptance based upon his works. He says, I'm a hard worker. I'm not as bad as him. Now, the shameful person starts with work also, but they blow it, right? They don't do good. Then they go to their identity. I'm a mess up. I'm a screw up in life. I can't do anything right. Their identity says I am no good and everyone rejects me. And then when they get to society, most of the time what? Society does reject them. And this is a constant cycle of grief. Both are grief-ridden because it's completely driven by what? Performance. Your works. It's driven by what you do. What you do defines who you are. And that is the cycle of grief. Even if you are self-righteous, some of you might have said, well, at least if you're self-righteous, you feel accepted, you feel good about yourself. Well, no, not necessarily, because even if you are self-righteous, you're completely driven by that performance. So in other words, in the back of your head, you always have that, that, that notion that says, well, if I mess up, then I'm in trouble too. And then if I'm in trouble and if I mess up, then my identity is broken, then you're back in the shameful and guilty side, right? So there's no escape. You always have to maintain your acceptance in society. It all falls on your own shoulders, and there's never a rest in that cycle. Because the moment that you rest and let your guard down, what? You're rejected, right? Everyone, the world's going to come crashing down on you, and you're going to lose your acceptance. And this is actually the very cycle of humanity. It's not just the Pharisees. It's not just the woman here. This is how the world actually works. I don't know if you've noticed this in your own lives, but this is how people function in life most of the times. And humans have never actually built a system that can free individuals from this cycle. We've never built a system that lets us step out of it. You can create laws. Yes, we've done this, but have laws fixed anything? No, they don't fix the heart. You always fall into one of these two traps. No matter how many laws you have, no matter well, what kind of great culture you had, you will fall into this. Either you lie to yourself and to others that you're upholding all the laws. That's the Pharisee. They say, well, I'm pretty good. Uh, no one's caught me doing any bad things. Or you hate yourself because you feel like you can't keep any of the laws. Right? That's, that's how much laws help. You either hate yourself or, or you love yourself too much. Right? But both of these are a mental nightmare. 
aren't they? Think about that. The the weight that comes with living like this, your conscience will eat you alive and uh, keep you running on that hamster wheel of grief that never lets you go anywhere, but stays on a constant track of condemnation. That's where life puts you. And the reality is that we need saved from this. We need someone to kind of take us off that hamster wheel and fix us. And that's what brings us to Jesus. He's he's the different one here. We've seen the similarities between the woman and the Pharisees and the scribes. That's like us. But there's someone that is not like us in a really beautiful way, and that is Jesus. The good news is that Jesus came to save us from this cycle of grief by giving us a new cycle called the cycle of grace. The cycle of grace. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But what makes Jesus able to save us from this is that he stands on the inside and the outside of the situation that we all find ourselves in. In this situation, in this text today, but also in your situation in your own life. He stands inside as a human. Jesus is actually a human, still a human today, who sympathizes with your needs. He's been tempted in every way, the scriptures say. And when he was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, Jesus knows how it feels to really, really want to give in to sexual immorality, right? To, to adultery even. It says he was tempted in every way. He was human. He knows what it feels like to fight sin, but he doesn't know what it feels like to give in. And that's what makes him different. He's, he's fully human, but God, Jesus, stands outside as God who has never sinned and has the ability to reunite God and man in his person. Right? This is how Jesus kind of has one foot in and one foot out, how he's fully God, fully man. And this is actually very good news for us that he's a little bit unlike us. He is like us, but he's also unlike us. So through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus reversed the cycle of grief. Let me explain how he does this. In his life, Jesus fulfilled the whole law that every one of you have broken and become deserving of death. At some point in your life, you have committed a sin that if you would uh, put it in the context of the Jewish law, you probably would have deserved a stoning. And Jesus lived under that same law, but he never deserved a stoning. Jesus lived a perfect, righteous life that never was uh, sinful at any point. So in his life, he fulfilled the whole law. In his death, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law that the sinner should die for his sins. None of you have died for your sins yet, right? And Jesus did die for sins, but it wasn't his sins, right? The sins that Jesus died for were not his own. And what does that mean when, when Jesus dies a death that he didn't deserve? It was an an act of injustice is what it was. It was a very, very horrible act. If you think about Jesus dying on the cross for something that he didn't do, this was the the, the worst thing that society could ever do, the greatest injustice of all time. But that greatest injustice of all time actually becomes our greatest hope, doesn't it? It becomes our greatest hope because the, the death that you and I should have died is actually placed on Christ. Jesus took what we should have uh, got for the sins that we have done. And when he died, what happened three days later? For the Christians in the room, we, we confess that Jesus rose from the dead. We really do believe that. And by his resurrection, we believe that this was an acceptance by the Father. The Father says, I accept what you did, Jesus. You died for the sins of people that do not deserve it. And Paul put it this way. He says, he who knew no sin became sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin, that's you, right? We are the sinners. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. See, it's the great exchange where we get the righteous uh, requirement of the law fulfilled in us when we believe in him. And he took what we deserve, our death. 
Now, how did Jesus reverse this cycle of grief? Let me tell you about how not only has he fulfilled the law for us and done these, these great things and died for our sins, but let me tell you how he kind of takes us out of that pattern that I was just talking about. He stepped into our situation and went through the cycle for us. He started from scratch as a baby boy. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, and when he was born, he lived a perfect life under the Jewish law his entire life. He's in our context. He's in our situation. Jesus came, and he met the righteous requirement of the law, and he knew he was righteous. Right? So his works showed that he was true. And then through his works, he, he knew what? I am righteous. Jesus knew who he was. He knew he was not a sinner. And yet he endured the penalty of an unrighteous person on the cross. He went through the rejection that he didn't deserve. Right? Do you see how the pattern is lining up? In his death, he drank the cup of wrath that you and I deserve to drink. Then on the third day, he rose from the grave. And this act of the God-man Jesus was accepted by the Father. And by faith in his person and work, when you believe in Jesus, some of you might say, well, what does it actually mean to believe in Jesus? When we believe in Jesus and his person and his work, we're promised to start our cycle of grace where Jesus ended our cycle of grief. He flipped it. He reversed it. Let me show you. Instead of working for our identity and acceptance by God, we start from it. Right? Remember the cycle that I talked about? Works to identity to acceptance? Jesus says, no, flip that. You're not going to be defined by your actions. You're going to be defined by something else, what someone else has done for you. So by grace, we start with acceptance, then realize our identity as chosen ones. God says, I've done this for you, and you believe that, and that propels us to what? Good works. It changes the way that we work and the way that we act. So when you start the right way, it actually keeps us on the right track with our works. So just like the woman caught in adultery, we start with acceptance in Jesus. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? In other words, when we see who we are in Jesus, we recognize that it doesn't matter who is saying what. That when we're accepted by God and we know who we are, we're able to move forward in our identity. Right? If God be for us, who can be against us? There is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This woman is starting to, to realize this, and Jesus is kind of calling it out of her. Uh, Jesus does not condemn her, and he does not condemn us. He accepts us, and this causes us to realize our identity as children of God. But he also doesn't condone our sins. This is something to catch here, too. Jesus doesn't say that we can sin so that grace may abound. That's the way Paul says it, actually. So just because you're accepted doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. What does it say in verse 11? Just because that we are uh, uh, not condemned, it doesn't mean that we're condoned in our sin. It says in verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. So there's his acceptance. Go and from no, now on, sin no more. In other words, I want there to be a change in the way that you act in your works, and the way that you perform. So the acceptance and identity of being placed in Jesus actually does change us from the inside out and gives us new desires to work for him. This is how the gospel affects us. This is how the gospel actually changes an, an individual. Someone might say, what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? It, mean, it means that, to realize who you are, and that actually changes you. And you can see how this cycle of grace is the reversal of the cycle of grief. This is how you step out of it. No human has ever written anything up that actually helps us to step out of this before until Jesus came and he gave us the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is how Jesus is our savior. This is the way that he actually saves us, the practical implications. He saves us from this sorry condition that many people try to master every single day. 
Every time they look in the mirror, when they don't know Jesus, when they don't understand the gospel, they might have an idea of what the gospel is to them. They think they know, but they don't really know. They keep living this cycle of grace each and every day. There's, there's shame and guilt-ridden. Or they're self-righteous. They think, well, I, I'm awesome. I, I've got it all together. I go to church every single week. I'm good. Right? That's not the gospel. It's not. That's a cycle of grief. So you might ask, well, how does Jesus do this? How does, how does Jesus go through his life and never sin at one point? And the answer to that question is he does it by being filled with the Spirit. Now here I'm going to allude back to a little bit of what we talked about last week. Some of you weren't here for that, but I'll just kind of fill you in. We talked about uh, the fact that Jesus promised that every be- promises that every believer that believes in him will have the Spirit. He'll have a, a river flowing out from his heart. And that's actually going to have implications for the way that you live. So... You remember how last week I told you that being a spirit-filled man or woman would give you the ability to speak up and say the right thing in the right moment, right? In complex situations, the spirit-filled man or woman knows what to do. Now, if you look at this text today, look at Jesus. Look at the situation that he found himself in. Doesn't Jesus amazingly respond to these scribes and Pharisees who think that they have him? They think, well, we've caught Jesus. Finally, we can expose him. But because Jesus was led by the Spirit, he had a higher judgment that not only appeased both the Jews and the Romans, but he also turned the scenario back on the accusers and completely disarmed them. Literally, they they were holding stones to kill a person, and they dropped those stones. Jesus completely rendered them uh, powerless. They had nothing to do to move forward. They dropped their stones, and their weapons of guilt and shame were dropped, and the woman who was about to be overcome by guilt and shame was set free. Right? The one that they had just told was guilty is now walking free too. In one fell swoop, Jesus brought order and peace by the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus did in this text. He is a spirit-filled man that was able to turn stoners to ex-stoners, adulterers to ex-homewreckers. He changed their identity, who they actually were, and that from that day on, they had a different identity. They were different people, and we even view them differently, right? We, we believe that when these Pharisees, these scribes, uh, when they dropped their stones, they weren't acting out the way that they were getting ready to. They had an actual change that came from Jesus acting in wisdom by the Holy Spirit. So it's this same Holy Spirit that leads Jesus not to condemn nor condone. He doesn't say her actions are fine, and she may continue in them, does he? He doesn't say it's fine that you uh, were committing adultery. He doesn't say the Pharisees' actions are fine either, that they may continue, right? He doesn't condone either of these. He acknowledges her actions as actually a stonable offense deserving of death, doesn't he? Think about what he does in the text. He says, all right, uh, we're going to stone her, and the one who has no sin, you do it first. So he doesn't condone. He says, no, it's fine, guys. No, he says, we're going to stone her. Let's get ready, guys. So he's kind of putting the test back on them. The way he deals with this is a pastoral response of grace, not guilt. Jesus is acting in complete grace. He doesn't make her feel worse and use shame and guilt to control her. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They were controlling this woman and her actions by making her feel bad. And Jesus, what he does is he he cleanly leads us and this woman into righteousness by neither condemning nor condoning. He didn't condemn the Pharisees and their zeal about the law. Right? He doesn't say, well, throw out the Jewish law. That's no good. He says, no, actually, we're going to stone her. Okay? But he doesn't condone their overly zealous stoning either because he knows what he's about to say is actually going to fix the scenario, doesn't he? Jesus knows what's going to happen. So he doesn't condemn the woman in her sin, but he also commanded her to go and sin no more. He did not condone adultery. So you are called, church, 
to do this very same kind of nuanced thing in the complex situations that you find yourself in every single day. You live in the world, but not of the world. You're supposed to have a higher judgment that is able to actually uh, empower you to make these kind of situations that call for a deep abiding in the Holy Spirit. The kind of thing where everyone in the room that's of the world says, uh, I don't know, there's just no way out. There, there's no solution. There's no, uh, there's no answer to this problem. You're supposed to say, actually, there is. And this is what it is. That's what, it call, that's what being filled with the Spirit is, is calling for. These kind of men and women to take this kind of action that doesn't condemn the sinners around you, but it also doesn't passively condone them. Right? It's hard to live in the world sometimes, isn't it? When we see people in sin, Jesus actually informs us how to move forward with those. We don't just sidestep it and never confront the issue. Jesus clearly confronts it. But he doesn't condone it either. Right? He calls it out and says, go, and from now on, right, sin no more. So church, as we close, I want you to see what happened in this story. Jesus entered a messy situation. It was only getting worse by the help of the people. And what he did is he changed everyone in the story. Both the woman and the scribes and the Pharisees have a shift in the direction after encountering Jesus. And I want you to think about this shift and what it was. The shift was actually a change in authority, a shift in the change of authority. The test was to see who was in charge. Is the Roman law in charge or is the jewish law in charge and what they were seeing this was is are you jesus is god in charge is god lord or is caesar lord and jesus actually doesn't say yes to either of those he has a nuanced answer and his in his wisdom he answers by writing on the ground right they, they ask him this question they want him to act and act and what does jesus do he kind of steps back he bends over and he writes on the ground. Just think about how that would catch you off guard. If you, if you think that you've got this person, you've got this trap in your mind and we're going to get him, what's he going to say? And he bends over and writes in the dirt. And you're wondering, what in the world did he write? And I don't know what he wrote. No one knows exactly what he wrote. But some commentators say that he did this because what he wrote was uh, actually what he was about to say uh, in the fashion of Roman law. This is what they would do. Right? So some say that what he wrote is what he said after this. And in Roman criminal law, the presiding judge first wrote down the sentence and then read it aloud, pronouncing the written record. Right? So, so we, we essentially say there's no like hidden secret where Jesus wrote something down and they all looked at it and said, oh my goodness, but it's not recorded in scripture, so we have no idea what it says. So some commentators say we actually do know what he says. He, he, or wrote. he, he just wrote what he said. So if this is in fact what Jesus was doing, then he was essentially saying this. Okay, you want me to play your, your game and you want me to overthrow the Roman law. I'll do so and I'll do it in the proper Roman method. Here's the sentence. Stoner. But the first one to stone should be the first one who has no sin. Right? There's that higher judgment. Where each of them have that gut check where they're like, okay, we're going to stone. Oh, wait, what? No sin? Well, who's that? Right? So Jesus answered their test by serving as judge, as Lord, and wording the execution so that it could not be carried out. No sinless person was present, and that's the whole point. Jesus wanted them to get that, that there was no one that was sinless there. They're there saying, look, we've caught her in the axe. She's guilty, 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 guilty. And Jesus says, I think you're all guilty. Every single one of you are guilty. So in one smooth move, Jesus assumed the authority of judge and Lord, and no one could deny that he rightly did so. Right? None of them said, you can't do that. Because what happened? They dropped their stones, right? They act 
uh, realizing that Jesus is in authority. And that is the point I want all of you to take home today. Jesus watches you as you're caught in the act by others. He sees that. He sees what you're going through. And Jesus watches as you catch others in the act. Right? The, 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 there's these scenarios where we sin and we're caught. And there's other times when other people sin and we catch them. So how will the grace of Jesus change that scenario in the way that you think about that sin? Back to what we talked about in the beginning. How does Jesus want you to think in light of your sin and the sin of other people's? Will Christ be who controls your next move or will you live by the law? That was the real question that the Jews wanted to answer. Which law are you going to appeal to, Jesus? And Jesus says, I'm Lord. I'm the one that you need to be looking to. I'm the one that gives this wisdom and this judgment that allows you to say, neither. Neither. It's me. I'm the whole point. So church, will the grace of the Lord loosen your grip on the stones in these moments? Or are they going to white knuckle? No. I can do this. They're guilty. They're guilty. Right? Is this the way that we're going to act? Will, will the grace of Jesus free your guilty heart or will it keep you bottling up your shame? Right? In, in light of the grace of Jesus, when you've really blown it, are you going to keep wallowing your sin? Are you going to keep going to the closet and crying over and over again, feeling awful about yourself? Or what does Jesus want you to do? Does he want you to feel bad about yourself? No. This is how the gospel practically informs our life, church. When we believe in Jesus, it takes us out of this cycle of grief and puts us into a cycle of grace that changes our identity, who we are in Christ. We see ourselves as accepted by God, loved by him, and that actually changes our actions. That is what it means to believe. So many people say, oh, I believe in Jesus. What does that mean? Right? This is what it means. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, none of us in here are like you. We're all sinners who stand condemned by the law. But because of what Jesus, your son, has done, we are set free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we who believe in you, trust that today. That's our great hope. And Lord, I pray for everyone in here who can't say that. That they can't say that I believe in Jesus. They can't say that I feel a condemnation-free life. I pray that you would lay this text heavy upon them. And the actions and the person of Jesus, I pray that they would encounter him this morning. And Lord, I pray that their hearts would be open and ready to receive you. That you would step into their heart. That you would give the, the charge by the Spirit over their life to where you can actually help them to step out of this cycle of shame and guilt or self-righteousness and step into a cycle of grace where we're overwhelmed by the grip of grace that we find in Jesus. Father, we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, now is the type, or part of our sermon.